Hey, Crime Style listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad. We're your host, Ashley. And Ricky. And we're here with a very interesting case this week. But first, we do have a shout out. We do. Newest patron, Angelica. Hey, Angelica, thanks so much for supporting our podcast. We really appreciate it. Yeah, she's enjoying ad-free listening on a beach somewhere. (laughs) And I do want to apologize. My voice, I'm kind of like losing it. She's a smoker. I am not a smoker. (laughs) Um, But I've been doing like nasal spray, so it's really been helping, actually. That's the secret. Gross. I hate nasal spray. The worst. All right, so let's dig into this week's episode. Although the case we're getting into today is one that's pretty well-known, we've decided it's also one that needs to be heard again for the reasons we will discuss in this episode. And also, just a friendly reminder, be a nosy neighbor, friend, or family member. Be aware of your surroundings. If you see something, say something. You could be helping someone in desperate need, someone who can't help themselves. In this episode, we will discuss some serious child abuse, so listener discretion is advised. Breaking news, a house of horrors in Paris. These pictures paint a portrait of one big happy family. But what police and deputies found at their house may shock you. Filthy, malnourished children shackled to their beds with padlocks. The tip came from one of the children, a 17-year-old girl who escaped the home on Muir Woods Road and then called 911. I live in a family of 15 people, and my parents are abusing, they abuse us. Take a second to look at the quiet, normal street you live on. Think for a minute about your neighbors, especially the ones you don't know too well. Maybe there's a quiet couple on your street who tends to keep to themselves. Sure, you might see them walking out to their car or say hi in passing, or simply notice that they aren't very social. But you don't know much about them. Now imagine you see that couple being arrested in front of their house and discover to your horror that they had 13 children inside, that they chained to their beds and starved. 13 children who had been enduring abuse for years in your totally normal subdivision. That's exactly what several Paris, California residents witnessed on January 14th, 2018, when David and Louise Turpin were arrested on their quiet suburban street and their 13 children were rescued from a home of filth, imprisonment, starvation, and abuse. Rightfully so, that house came to be known as the House of Horrors. Some of their neighbors claimed that they had no idea the Turpins even had children at all, while others noted some strange happenings that they chose to ignore. No matter which way you slice it, the Turpin children endured years of abuse that no one seemed to notice at all. So let's talk about David and Louise Turpin. By the time of their arrest, David and Louise Turpin had been married for 33 years and had renewed their wedding vows three times over in Las Vegas. 
The last instance of their vow renewal was in 2015, with their extremely thin children in attendance, all wearing matching clothing. But the relationship originally began in the small town of Princeton, West Virginia. According to her sister, Louise was a good girl who never drank, smoked, or did drugs. And by all accounts, David was described as a studious, busy teen who was kind of nerdy and kind of a homebody. Both Louise and David were acquainted through their devout Pentecostal church, the Princeton Church of God. And Louise's mother, Phyllis, had allowed 16-year-old Louise to date David even though he was six years her senior. Initially, Phyllis kept this information from Louise's father, Wayne, who was a preacher himself, and it didn't take long for David and Louise to decide to get married. According to Louise's sister, Teresa, David told her that if she would elope with him and marry him, he would give her everything she ever wanted. So 22-year-old David somehow managed to convince Louise's high school to sign her out and then drove her 1,000 miles across the country towards Texas. So according to Teresa, Louise's dad was not happy about the situation when he found out. He was very angry that Phyllis had even allowed them to date in the first place. David and Louise were pretty quickly caught by police and returned to their hometown. And although Wayne wasn't happy about the relationship, he ended up giving Louise his blessing, saying, I love you and I'll always be your daddy, but now you can take care of yourself. If this is what you want, go for it. So the couple ended up having a small, intimate church wedding with just their two families before they went back to Texas to start their lives together. In 1988, the couple had their first child, Jennifer, and in 1992, the small family relocated to Fort Worth, Texas. During these years, David and Louise would have seven more children, bringing the total number of kids during the time in Fort Worth to eight. David's parents have since revealed that David and Louise were a part of the quiverful movement, a theological position followed by some conservative Christians who view large families as a gift from God. Procreation is encouraged and any kind of birth control is definitely not, so that does offer some insight into their continually growing family. When interviewed by Diane Sawyer for 2020, Jennifer Turpin described her early memories of the home, saying that their home eventually became filthy, covered with mold, dirt, and trash, and that she witnessed her father punch through a wall in anger. I went downstairs for a glass of water, for a cup of water, and on the stairs, I saw my father yelling very loudly at my mother. My mother was crying. She started to say something. He's like, no, you shut up. And he took his fist and punched it in the wall, made a hole in the wall. She also mentioned that she remembered her mother's frequent mood swings from an early age. To their extended family, it seemed like the Turpins were a well-to-do family. After all, as a Virginia Tech University alumni who studied computer engineering, David Turpin reportedly worked for respected companies like Lockheed, Martin, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics before retiring in 2012. He had a respectable job. They lived in a nice two-story home and drove nice cars. So it all looked pretty good from the outside. And not only that, but every year, David and Louise would fly Louise's family out to visit them and go on trips to destinations like Disney World, Six Flags, and Universal Studios, while also treating them to shopping and meals out. 
Louise's sister Teresa described their home during the time as beyond beautiful and happy. She remembers it being spotless. But gradually, the Turpins began a steady decline. They were secretly bankrupt from spending beyond their means. It would later be revealed that Louise had unusual spending habits, such as buying toys like multiple collector Monopoly boards and children's clothing that she hoarded for herself rather than providing them to her children. By 1998, David and Louise had largely withdrawn from their extended family. Their oldest child, Jennifer, was pulled from school when she was in third grade, where she was often bullied and referred to as Smelly Girl. Unfortunately, Jennifer's lack of care and hygiene did not prompt any known inquiry from her teachers before her parents began to homeschool her and the other children, further isolating them from the outside world. Louise and David had previously sent photos of the kids to extended family. But during this time, they totally stopped sharing any visuals of their family after hearing some comments from the relatives about how small they were. By 1999, the Turpins had moved out of their Fort Worth home after it was foreclosed on, and the house they left behind was a true disaster. The new owner of the home took photos of the dismal state of the carpets and the walls, which were covered with large stains in what he believed was smeared feces. It was a far cry from the spotless home that Teresa had described. The family's new home, 50 miles south in the small rural town of Rio Vista, Texas, unfortunately intensified the children's isolation. And during these years, the Turpins added four more children to their previous eight. They used the Bible to justify their mistreatment of the children, often quoting Deuteronomy, and would punish the kids for disobeying mother and father by doing everything from pushing them down the stairs, hitting them with belts, sticks, and putting them in dog kennels and homemade cages. Neighbors Ricky and Shelley Vineyard thought the Turpins were odd from the start, and their suspicions about how the children were treated grew over the years. Shelley Vineyard said that she remembered thinking at a glance that the Turpin children were wearing gloves because their hands were the only parts of their bodies that weren't visibly dirty. And, and I said, well, I thought you had gloves on there for a minute. And she goes, you, uh, you wash to the wrist or else you're wasting water. And the way she spoke was really, you know, strange. However, neither Shelley or Ricky ever spoke about their concerns, reportedly saying, you're out in the country and you mind your own business, and you figure that they want their business kept to themselves also. And you don't realize what you're seeing. You know, I mean, evil is very deceptive. I mean, it can look good from a surface if you don't get in there too deep. The Turpin family rarely left the four-bedroom, two-bath house. They kept lights on at all hours, blinds drawn. The house was silent all day long. But at night, however, the children would be in the front yard playing, and the house would be lit up. It was another way for the parents to isolate their children from the rest of the world. One Christmas, they bought eight new children's bicycles that sat outside, unused, until they became sun-bleached. And as far as the children were concerned, they rarely emerged. Soon after the family arrived, Jennifer Turpin tried to run away and was picked up by a local resident. 
When she was in that resident's car, the girl didn't seem to know key facts about her own life and the world in general. She didn't even know her own age or who the president was at the time. Her malnourishment and strange speech patterns made the driver believe she was mentally challenged, which made them return her home. Neighbors also noticed that the family stacked a dumpster in their yard with trash that eventually filled the house and a nearby double-wide trailer. Some other neighbors said that they saw two of the older boys out one night. When they looked closer, the boys were huddled over a trash can, digging food out and eating it. And still, no one questioned what was going on in the Turpins' house in any kind of formal way. In 2010, they moved to California, and just like they had in Fort Worth, they left behind the Rio Vista house in shambles. Their neighbors went into the house after they left and said it smelled of funk, and all of the cabinets were padlocked. They also said there were ropes on the bunk beds, a makeshift school set up in the living room, and they actually had to wade through rats and dead cats in the double-wide trailer. They had also left behind family dogs that had been surviving on trash. While we were wading through this mess, there were rats jumping up. Man, I, that right there was disgusting. It was a house of horrors, a true house of horrors. In May 2010, after the Turpin crew abandoned their Rio Vista, Texas home, they headed west and settled in Murrieta, California. When they arrived there, the children's world shrank even more than it was before. The neighborhood they lived in was a cul-de-sac, much different from the 30-plus acre farm they lived on in Texas. Louise and David started a school called the Sandcastle School that only had their children in attendance. Again, they used homeschooling as a tactic to isolate the children from the outside world and make it impossible for anyone to ask questions about their well-being. In 2014, the Turpins moved to Paris, California, where the abuse intensified. The children were often chained to their beds, fed only once a day, bathed only once a year, and had no communication with the outside world. In general, they were not allowed to even stand up very often. David and Louise first tied them to their beds with rope, but then moved onto chains. The children sometimes remained chained up for two months, only released to eat or go to the bathroom. The children were allowed usually one meal per day, typically a peanut butter sandwich, and the parents would eat whatever they wanted. David and Louise would buy food for themselves, but not the children. They even left out apple and pumpkin pies that the children could never have and would punish the children for stealing mother's food. During the time they lived in Paris, David and Louise allowed their eldest son to take a class at a local community college. A classmate said that whenever he came to class, Louise always waited outside for him. And when class was over, they immediately left. He never talked to anyone, but on days where there was pizza brought into class, he ate as much as he could. Family members continued to ask why they couldn't see the children. Louise said that they wanted to stay home and help her raise the children. In 2015, they welcomed their 13th and final child. David also planned what would be their last wedding vow renewal in Vegas with an Elvis impersonator. 
all 15 members of the family were in attendance. The video footage of this event is so disturbing. All you see is a family of extremely thin children dressed identically, nervously dancing around an Elvis impersonator and the parents who routinely abused them. Billy Lambert, Louise's half-brother, was the last relative to speak to Louise before her arrest. Louise had told him she was planning to buy a school bus and wanted a 14th child. Hi, this is Daniel Roof, the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown. The postseason and Bet Online is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information, up to the minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series and through the World Series. Don't forget, Bet Online is where you have the latest game odds, present totals for the NFL and college football, plus real time updates on statistics, news, and odds. Serious up betting on football. So head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at Bet Online, where the game starts. On January 14th, 2018, Jordan Turpin, then 17, escaped from her parents' abusive home and called 911. She quietly climbed up on a windowsill of her parents' home without them knowing and dropped down into the outside world. Her hands were shaking uncontrollably as she held a deactivated cell phone her parents didn't know she had. But thinking of her siblings chained up inside the house, she worked up the courage to dial 911. As Jordan told Diane Sawyer on 2020, I was trying to dial 911, but I couldn't even get my thumb to press the buttons because I was shaking so bad. Jordan reached a dispatcher who kept her talking as she wandered the neighborhood. Eventually, the dispatcher instructed her to wait at a stop sign, where she could wait for the deputy to arrive. Again, in her 2020 interview, Jordan said, I was telling them everything. We don't go to school. We live in filth. How we starve and all of this stuff. Jordan said, because I had to make sure that if I left, we wouldn't be going back. Jordan said she was petrified that law enforcement wouldn't believe her. I was freaking out because I was like, wait, are you going to take me back there? I was so scared, she said. I was so nervous because it was like, I've never really had a conversation with a stranger before. Deputy Anthony Coles was the deputy who came to Jordan's aid. Coles said that the majority of runaway calls only require taking the child back home to their family. When he arrived, Jordan quickly told him her whole life story, which was largely captured on his body cam. After hearing of her chained-up siblings, he asked Jordan if she had pictures to prove what she was saying. And Jordan did. Her siblings had consented to her taking photos of them so that she could get help. And she showed Deputy Coles the photos of her dirty, shackled sisters, explaining that the chains were punishment for stealing mother's food. As Coles recalled to ABC News, they looked very sad, malnourished, they were very pale, and they had bags underneath their eyes. Coles asked if Jordan was injured, and she asked what injured meant. He further asked if she was hurt, and she said no. He also asked her if she was on any medication, and she explained that she didn't know what medication meant. At this point, Deputy Coles asked Jordan if they would see her siblings chained up if they went into the house at that time. Jordan told them if they didn't notice me missing yet, 
But if they did notice me missing, they're going to try to cover all of that up, she said. Coles told her to wait in his cruiser while he called for backup. Riverside County Sheriff's reinforcements headed to the Turpin's door and knocked for well over two minutes before David and Luis Turpin finally opened it. Because they suspected that a child was in danger, they didn't need a warrant to enter the home. The officers, saying they were conducting a welfare check, searched the home, where in one room they found the two young, malnourished girls from Jordan's photo with bruised wrists. Within minutes, the deputies found the chains that had just been removed from the girls. In another bedroom, police found a boy with thick chains on his wrists and ankles, tied to a bed railing. He had been there for a month or more, investigators said. And like the houses they had left behind in the past, there was trash and the smell of filth everywhere in the house. Less than two hours after Jordan climbed out of her bedroom window, David and Louise Turpin were being escorted out of their filthy home in handcuffs. At the time of the arrest, the Turpin children ranged in age from 2 to 29. Besides suffering from severe caloric malnutrition associated with muscle wasting, several had cognitive impairment and neuropathy, which is nerve damage, as a result of the extreme and prolonged physical abuse. Later, medical examinations after their rescue would reveal that many were so emaciated that they had trouble walking. They also had stunted growth, heart damage from lack of nutrients, and one of the preteen's arms was only the size of a four-month-old baby. The 12-year-old was the weight of an average seven-year-old, and the 29-year-old only weighed 82 pounds. Police rushed all 13 children to the hospital, where they were treated, given clean clothes, rooms, and food. The first thing Jordan said she ate was macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets. During a January 19, 2018 press conference, Riverside County District Attorney Mike Hestron read the charges that were filed against David and Louise. Twelve counts of torture against David and Louise, one count of lewd act on a child under 14 years of age by force, fear, or duress against David. When asked about this, the DA said that David touched the child. Seven counts of abuse of a dependent adult against David and Louise. Six counts of child abuse or neglect against David and Louise. Twelve counts of false imprisonment against David and Louise. David was charged with perjury at a later date, related to affidavits he filed with the California Department of Education over the years, claiming that the children were being educated in a private school. In addition to the horrific abuse already mentioned, Hestron said that the parents had completely reversed the children's sleep cycles. They would sleep all day and be up all night. This was a way to keep them from being seen outside during the day and keep them isolated. These sleep patterns remained well past the rescue as well. During the press conference, a reporter asked why there were 12 counts of torture instead of 13 when there were 13 children. He stated that from all appearances, David and Louise actually fed the two-year-old and that the basis of the torture charges stemmed from them not giving the children food. 
After a while, though, on February 22nd, 2019, both David and Louise pled guilty to one count of torture, three counts of willful child cruelty, four counts of false imprisonment, and six counts of cruelty to an adult dependent. Both were sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. However, experts believe that they will never be paroled, based solely on the severity and heinous nature of their crimes. David Turpin was sent to the Mule Creek State Prison, but eventually was transferred to California State Prison, Cochrane. Louise Turpin is in the Central California Women's Facility. After their rescue, all of the Turpin children spent several weeks in hospitals. Six of the minors were released and placed into two foster homes. Jordan, the child who made that police call, who saved her siblings and herself, said that one of the first things she did after the rescue was go to a park, and she said, how could heaven be better than this? Later in 2018, Teresa, Luis's sister, and Billy, Luis's half-brother, both said that they wanted to take in and adopt their nieces and nephews if they were allowed to. After a while of trying to work through that process, Teresa realized that she wouldn't be able to simply because she had five children of her own and it would be very difficult for her to provide for a family that size. In an update in April of 2020, it was stated that all of the minor children had been adopted, but no further information was given due to the fact that they were minors. And yet, one of the most frustrating parts of this case is that the children have been let down by the systems that should be helping them. Back when David and Louise were being sentenced, the court-appointed attorney for the seven adult children, Jack Osborne, had a lot of hopeful words to share, but whether they've been actualized is another matter altogether. He stated, We are confident, given what they've been through and how resilient they are, that they're going to be really successful. It's going to be really exciting to watch that through the years. But these hopes have so far proved to be hollow. Despite the fact that their story received international attention and thousands of dollars in donations from caring strangers, the Turpin children say that they still do not have access to many of the services that were promised to them. District Attorney Mike Hestrin, who was responsible for prosecuting David and Louise and putting them behind bars, says that he and his team are some of the few outsiders who have managed to stay in touch with the children. According to him, many of the adult children are living in squalor. They're living in crime-ridden neighborhoods. There's money for their education. They just can't access it. Critics say that these unacceptable circumstances are indicative of structural deficiencies in the human welfare systems in one of the largest counties in the country, Riverside County. As Hestron said to ABC News that it is unimaginable to him that we could, quote, have the very worst case of child abuse that I've ever seen, and then that we would then not be able to get it together to give them basic needs, end quote. The children have received over $600,000 in private donations, and much of it has been kept from the Turpin siblings. Despite these donations, government programs, and further pledges of support, Many of the Turpin children, especially those who now are grown, are living in dangerous conditions without being able to easily meet their basic needs like healthcare, transportation, food, and even safe places to live. Two of the adult children have had to resort to couch surfing at times, and one of them was just assaulted. 
Jordan Turpin said that she was released without warning from extended foster care with no plan for food, health care, life skills, training, or shelter. And Jennifer claims that she herself does not live in a safe area. One of the older Turpin boys, Joshua, tried to call the public guardian's office to access funds for a bike that he could use for basic transportation and was flat out denied. His attorney, Jack Osborne, refused to even let him know who was actually in charge of the trust that was supposed to be there to meet the Turpin children's needs. These kids needed guidance and they need a break. When you place sheltered young people without basic life skills in dangerous neighborhoods and refuse to give them any guidance, that's an obvious recipe for disaster. These kids did not deserve this after what they went through. With all the secrecy surrounding their case and the issues they're having accessing resources, it can be hard to figure out how change needs to happen in this system. What is clear, however, is that children who suffer abuse should not have to suffer more when the state has promised to protect them. We sincerely hope that the Turpin children can be strong and resilient in the face of all of these obstacles and that changes are made so that they can receive the helping hand they need to live a safe and happy life. Despite all of the failings and setbacks, despite all that they have endured, the Turpin children will preserve and thrive. As Jennifer Turpin said in her interview with Diane Sawyer, quote, I want the last name Turpin to be remembered as a name of strength. They are not weak. They're not broken. They've got this. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. We will see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. Hi, this is Daniel Rue the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown in the postseason, and BetOnline is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. BetOnline has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, BetOnline is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. BetOnline has real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds. We're serious up betting on football. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at BetOnline, where the game starts.